Hey, good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday service. We gather every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. We gather in person for worship, for prayer. We study the Word of God together. We have kids' church, and then we gather throughout the week in small groups. Uh, We meet in homes. We meet online, and we have more information. You can just email smallgroups at faithonhill.com. And then uh, online, of course, Sunday mornings, uh, live streamed at faithonhill.com on video. And then the videos are always there at our Facebook page. And then uh, audio versions of our live serv- our Sunday morning services and all of our podcasts are on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You just have to search Faith on Hill. Our podcasts include the uh, Starting Points podcast, which is kind of an overview look at the whole Bible. Our 20-minute Bible study, we're finishing up the book of 1 Samuel. And our Talk About Anything podcast, which is a long-form conversational podcast. All right, we are going to continue studying the Gospel of Matthew. We're getting close to being done. And uh, we are going to look at Matthew chapter 22. So you can turn in your Bibles there as we continue to study the Word of God together. Well, Matthew chapter 22 begins with a story. You know, the Bible is divided into chapters and verses, but that's not how it was originally written. Uh, Matthew didn't start with chapter 1 and then go chapter 2. Those were added later, and they're for our benefit and blessing. They're incredibly helpful. Uh, Helps us remember where things are, helps us to find stuff easily. And more often than not, the chapter breaks are very, very good. Sometimes they're not. And the parable at the beginning of Matthew chapter 22 really should be uh, in chapter 21. It's part of those parables of rejection. But Matthew chapter 22 and chapter 23 are really one long event. And you kind of get the feeling like the people that added the chapter breaks was just like, hey, let's just break this up. You know, it's one big long event. Let's just cut it in half. Chapter 22, chapter 23. So it begins with this story of a wedding. And funny enough, yesterday I I did a wedding. Um, My friends were getting married. I was happy to be there, be part of their day. And uh, so uh, Jesus tells a story of a wedding, and he says a king is having a wedding, and he compares the kingdom of heaven to that of a kingdom on earth. And the king was preparing a wedding, and it was the wedding of his son. And he invites all of the nobles And the high officials and the important people. And he says, come, my son is getting married. I've prepared the wedding feast. Come and celebrate with me. Now, royal weddings are a big deal. We don't have them in America, of course. But, you know, there are are people who are really into the royals in England, here in America. And that weirds other Americans out. But there are people who, like when William and Kate got married or when Harry and Meghan got married, they stayed up like late into the night to watch it. Um, Like when the queen died recently, like that was a big deal for me, you know, because I lived in England for a while, uh, for many, for several years. I spent half of my 20s in England. So when the queen died, like that was a big deal for me. Uh, I did not stay up to watch Harry and Meghan get married. But like when the queen died, like that was a thing. And, And so this big deal when the king's son gets married, And so it says, Jesus says, hey, it's like the king's son gets married and he sends his servants out to invite all the high officials. And then it said, hey, tell them to come. But he says they refused. That doesn't happen. You don't refuse an invitation to the royal wedding. So then he sent out more servants 
Tell those who have invited, I've prepared the dinner. The oxen, the fatted calf have been butchered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention, went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized the servants and mistreated them and killed them. So he's using that same motif from the parable of the tenets where, you know, they, they killed one servant and they beat another. And Jesus was saying that's representative of the prophets, uh, the Old Testament prophets that went and spoke to the people of God. So he said to his servants, no, I said, for, sorry, verse 7, so the king was enraged, so he sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burnt their city. And then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come, so go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good. The wedding hall was filled with guests. And when the king came to see the guests, he noticed that there was a man who was not wearing wedding clothes. And he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? And the man was speechless. So the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. So this is the same message that he gave in the other parables of rejection, that the king has invited the people to the, to the feast, invited them to the celebration. The Son, Jesus, has appeared among them, but they have rejected him. And so they will be rejected themselves. And others will be invited. And, and it gets into this whole thing about uh, throwing some out into the darkness. And we'll get into that when we get into Matthew chapter 24 in a couple weeks, the end of the world. We'll get into that. But this sets the stage for what happens because instead of responding to this message that Jesus is preaching to them, it says, Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. The Herodians would have been representatives of King Herod, the puppet king who was, you know, the, the puppet king for the Roman occupiers. The Pharisees and the Herodians would not have had anything to do with each other, they would have been enemies, morally politically, philosophically, they would not have been friends. They would have had nothing to do with each other. It reminds me, actually, uh, when I was in Russia in 1998, uh, the Orthodox Church and the Jews and the Muslims got together. I mean, this sounds like the beginning of a bad joke. An Orthodox priest, a rabbi, and an imam walk into a bar, right? Ha, ha, ha. This sounds like the bad beginning of a bad pastor joke, right? It's not. This is a true story. They got together and they lobbied the mayor of this city so that you could not preach the gospel in certain places in the city. And the reason was that since communism had fell, too many people were becoming Christians. Too many people were becoming Christians. And they weren't going to the Orthodox Church anymore. And if you know anything about the Russian Orthodox Church, especially what's going on right now, you know why. And people were, Jewish people were becoming Christians. And Muslim people were becoming Christians. And so they got together, these three groups that should not be friends, right? They got together to oppose the preaching of the gospel. The same thing's happening here. And they got together and they tried to trap Jesus. And they did it this way. They said, teacher, we know that you're a man full of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with, uh, excuse me, in accordance with the truth. You're not swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. So they're using a lot of big flattering words. This is all BS. 
Am I allowed to say that? Oh, I just said it, so I said it. Okay. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? So they're trying to get Jesus trapped into politics. They are trying to get Jesus trapped into politics. That's how they're trying to trip him up in his words. And that's why they've gotten together with the Herodians, because the Herodians are political. That's their whole power base, is their political connection to Herod and Herod through Herod the Romans. And so this is a political question. If we can get Jesus to say something against Caesar, then the Romans will get involved and take him out for us. If we can get Jesus to say something pro-Caesar, then the people who hate Caesar will turn against him. This is trying to get Jesus caught up in politics. We are not a political church. I don't think any church should be political. Now, there are spiritual issues that have political implications. There's no way around that. There are. There are spiritual, biblical issues that have political implications. And you can't hide from that. There are things that God proclaims in his word to people that are politicized. But that doesn't mean that we have to get trapped up in politics. Because that's what they're trying to do to Jesus, and he wants no part of it. There's an election coming up. I don't know what it is about this election, but I have gotten more mailers. I've had people knocking at my door. And maybe you've had that too. I was talking to some friends uh, recently. They said the same thing. They've had more, uh, you know, just everything, ads, mailers, all the stuff. But I'll say this too, as a pastor, I have had more pressure this go around than I had two years ago in the presidential election and four years ago from that one. I have had more pressure for me to quote unquote rally you. And I don't know what it is about this election that's causing it. But there are people who want me to rally you and get us as a church involved in politics. And I've got no interest in doing that. And we're, I'll tell you this, we're a politically diverse church, and that's just fine. Because as I read the Bible, the original Christians were a politically diverse group, and Jesus stayed out of politics. They're trying to get him trapped up. There's an election coming. Vote the way that you think you should vote. Pray. Ask God. God gives the Holy Spirit to people. Ask God to give the Holy Spirit to speak to you, to tell you, hey, Lord, how should I vote? What would you have me do with the responsibility and the opportunity that you have given me? And I trust God to speak to you. That's about as political as I'm ever going to get. It's also a dishonest question that they're asking, and here's why. Jesus, is it right for us to pay the tax to Caesar? All of them paid their taxes. There's not one person there that wouldn't because if they didn't, the Romans were going to come get them. So they're saying, Jesus, can you give us an opinion on something that we're all doing? It's not like any of them were taking some moralistic stand on this. Certainly there were those in Israel who weren't, who were living out in some of these uh, extremist communities out in the wilderness who weren't, but these guys weren't. So they were being hypocritical and dishonest, and Jesus calls them out on this. What does he say to them? He says, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me a coin used for paying the tax. And they brought him a denarius. 
And he said, whose image is on this? Whose inscription? And they said, Caesar's. And when he said to them, so give back to Caesar's what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed and they left him and went away. So he's saying, hey, Caesar's image is on it. He wants his money back. Give it back to him. It's his coin. And they were amazed. It's not really that amazing of an answer. I kind of think the only reason that they're amazed is that they're so caught in their small kind of insular bubble that they, they can't see past it. But Jesus calls them out. He says, you guys are hypocrites. You guys are so caught in the weeds and you guys are so stuck that you will partner up the Pharisees. They were supposed to be, think of the Pharisees as the moralists. Think of the Pharisees as the really religious, like I will stand, I will be upright. And now you're partnering with the Herodians. The Herodians were incredibly immoral. The the Herodians were like the people who will do anything with anyone and don't care about anything. And now you're partnering with them because you're so desperate to take Jesus out. You're hypocrites. And you're trying to entrap Jesus with a question that you yourself already know the answer to. You're hypocrites. And there are people that are trying to get us entrapped in their own hypocrisy. Then another group comes, the Sadducees. It says that same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Now, Matthew writes his gospel primarily to a Jewish audience. Primarily, Matthew's gospel tends to be written towards a Jewish audience. But we don't hear a lot about the Sadducees. Matthew, more than the other gospel writers, talks about the Sadducees. The Sadducees are mentioned 14 times in the entire New Testament. But even Matthew has to explain for the purposes of the the story what the Sadducees' deal is. They don't believe there's a resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees were the cultural elites. They were the old money of Israel. They were the old power of Israel. Uh, We would say they're the East Coast elites uh, for Portland. They're the people who live up in the West Hills, right? They're, they're, They're the old money. I think part of the reason why you don't hear a lot about them and now they're popping up in the story is because it's in Jerusalem. Jesus' primary ministry was outside of Jerusalem, in Galilee, in the Jordan, out towards the sea in, in Caesarea Philippi. He was among the people. The Sadducees stayed close to power and money in the city of Jerusalem. But now that Jesus is on their turf, they will come and speak to him. These guys are not just cultural elites, and that's why I, I think you hear more about them in the book of Acts, because a lot of the early book of Acts and the later book of Acts is in Jerusalem, so they start to pop up again. But they're also what I would call functional spiritual agnostics. And what I mean by that is this. There's two types of functional spiritual agnostics in our world. There are people who believe in God. They believe in God in a big sense. But do you believe in God like in your world? No. Like God has very little impact in my world on the street level. I believe in God in the big sense, but not at the street level. 
And then there are people who are very, very spiritual at the street level. I believe that there are spiritual forces at work. I believe in in spiritual powers, karma, uh, whatever you want to call it. It's very vague, very nebulous, very hard to pin down. But then is there a God in a bigger sense on the big picture scale? Who is at work? Who is it moving? And then the answer tends to be no, I don't really believe in that, or I don't know, or it's too far beyond us. So either the spiritual is very happening at the street level, but not at the big picture level, or the spiritual is very happening at the big picture level, but not at the street level. And, and the, the Sadducees tended to be that, that latter group. We believe in God. Yes, there is a God, but in a functional level, they do not. They did not believe in miracles. They did not believe in the supernatural in any way. They did not believe in the prophets. They did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They did not believe, they, you die, that's it. They were very influenced by the, uh, the cultures around them, uh, by Greek culture and philosophy, Plato, Aristotle, all those guys, very influenced by, by what we might think of for them, modernist thinking. So they come with this question. And I, and I bet they thought this is like one of their like standard, this will really trip up this religious leader, this new hotshot rabbi. So they say to him, Teacher, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry his widow and raise up offspring for him. And that's what's called the kinsman redeemer. Uh, You might remember the book of Ruth. We studied it a few years ago on Sunday mornings. You know, the book of Ruth says that if somebody's, if a woman's husband died and they didn't have kids, you know, there was like, it was kind of a welfare system. I don't want to get totally into it, but this is the the cultural thing that they had. And so, you know, a woman's husband died, the next brother married her, and there were seven brothers, and the first one married and died. And since there was no children, uh, and he left his wife to his brother, the same thing happened to the second, the third, right down to the seventh. So basically this, this woman's like bad, you know, bad luck for her. Her husband dies, no kids. She remarries. Uh, you know, the next, the next brother dies. And so she has seven husbands. And every one of them dies before they have kids. Like, total tragedy. Bummer of a life. Bummer of a story. Finally, the woman dies. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? So they have this kind of logical fallacy that they hold is like, uh, there can't be a resurrection of the dead. If there was a resurrection of the dead and this happened, and by the way, this probably happened at some point. At some point in that system, if that was the system of the culture, at some point in their history, something like that happened. I'm just going to guess. And they said, hey, whose wife is she? It's kind of like the person that says, like, "Can can God make a stone so big that he can't lift it? By the way, the answer is yes, and, and it's, it's a silly question. The premise of the question is, is there something God can't do? There's plenty of things God can't do. He can't lie. He can't change. He can't sin. There, there's plenty of things God can't do. He, he can't go back on his word. The premise of this question is, at the resurrection, who gets to be the, the husband of this woman, and then which you know, which one of the seven is lucky and, which, and then which six are left out in the cold. And Jesus responds and he says, you are in error because you do not know the scripture or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven, 
But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teachings. Hmm. So, he says two things. You don't know the scriptures, and you don't know the power of God. So what he's saying is, first, let's take it that you don't know the scriptures. He says to the Sadducees, you bring this whole Moses and the law thing, and now you're trying to apply it to the resurrection. But that's not what that verse is about. If you're going to look at the concept of the resurrection, then go to Bible verses that talk about eternity. Go to parts of the scripture that talk about the resurrection. Go to parts of the scripture that talk about life after death and evaluate those on their own terms. And he goes to those scriptures and he says, when God spoke He said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, present tense, that they are still alive. You know, my dad died when he was 13, when I was 13. My dad didn't die when he was 13. That'd be weird. My dad died when I was 13. But he's gone from this life, but he is still alive. He is present with the Lord. Now, my I have a a not as crazy story in here, but but my mom was married twice. My mom was married to my dad. My dad died. My mom remarried. Whose wife will she be? Neither. Both Jim and Brian, my dad and my stepdad, neither. They will be neither married nor given in marriage. Marriage is for this life until death do us part. But Jesus is saying, you're trying to make some kind of logical fallacy to disprove something, but you don't know the scriptures. You're you're mishandling the scriptures. Let me say this. Most criticisms of the Bible where somebody says, oh, the Bible says this, so you can't trust it, is situations like this, where somebody is taking the Bible out of context and using it to disprove the Bible by using the Bible out of context. Most of the time, it's that. Most of the time, it's a logical fallacy. Most of the time, it's taking history out of context. Um, I I, I was reading um, some reviews of, uh, like, you know, uh, Christopher Hitchens' work, uh, you know, and and I was reading the reviews of, from other atheists who are also critics of the Christian faith, and they were saying, what what are you doing here? Your your work is is amateurish. You know, one guy was saying, you're, you're using, uh, you're using one person's work here to try to claim that this is the view of every person. You, you use, you use uh, something from the first century to try to claim that it was the view of every century. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? That there's, there are these logical fallacies that people take, and then they pass on, and they pass on, and they pass on. And you just kind of go, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. They don't know the Scripture. And this is true, by the way, with with a lot of people in our own culture. They don't know the scripture, but then they pass it on and they pass it on. He says, you don't know the power of God. Well, how were they supposed to know the power of God? How many of them had bothered to leave Jerusalem to go where Jesus was, to go where John the Baptist was? Because the power of God was working there. 
And yet they didn't. So here were the Pharisees. These were the religious moralists, the upright people, the church-going people, however you want to describe them. But they're hypocrites. And they're so desperate to take out Jesus that they're partnering with these immoral, political people, whatever. And now here are the cultural elites, uh, these, you know, theologically dead, you know, we might think of them as theologically liberal, but that's a, a, almost an unhelpful word. And they come at Jesus with this sort of like, oh, we've really got you now with our intellectualism. And he says, you don't actually know the Bible, and you don't know the power of God. And I have found that to be true often, where somebody comes with their great, oh, you don't understand, you know, you don't have deeper knowledge. And one or both of these things is true. Either they have read deeply of a philosopher, but not actually the Bible, or they themselves have never bothered to seek out where God is moving and working. One of those things or both has been true. And then another group of Pharisees come, hearing that Jesus has silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together, and one of them, an expert of the law, tested him with this question, teacher, which is the greatest command of the law? I'm puzzled why they came at them with this at this moment. Part of me thinks that this person genuinely wanted to know. Part of me thinks that they just have nothing left, and this is just like, let's try this. Whatever the reason, he replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And this is like the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself, and all the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. And he's saying, love God and love others. And there are all these things people want to fight about. The Pharisees were trying to get him to fight over politics. The Sadducees were trying to get him to fight over philosophy and logic. And he brings them back to this. It's all about loving God and loving others. And then he says to the Pharisees who were gathered there, what do you think about the Messiah? Who is he? Well, the son of David, they replied. In verse 43, he said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, quoting from Psalm 110, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how then can he be his son? For no one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Now, we might not fully grasp this right away, but I'll say this. David, King David, right? A king will always be honored by their descendants. You know, Charles, King of England, would always pay homage and honor to the kings and queens who came before him. They would never honor him. You always honor those who came before you in a royal line. So what Jesus is saying to them, after they've come at him with all of these things, he says, who's the Messiah? And they say, well, he's the son of David. And then he quotes the scriptures to them, and he says, Psalm 110. David says that the Messiah is his Lord. David pays honor and homage to the Messiah, even though the Messiah is from his line. Why is that? And he's bringing it back. He's bringing the focus back. And this ties everything back up. 
Because the world around us is this. We are surrounded by people who are religious hypocrites. We're going to talk more about them next week. We are surrounded by people who don't actually know what the Christian faith is all about, even if they think they do. We are surrounded by people who don't want to live in love. We are surrounded by people who think that, oh, well, the Christian faith is all about living in love, but they miss that it's not about love. It's about loving God and loving others. What do we do with all of this confusion? We bring it back to Jesus. I want to speak to believers. If you're a believer in Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, our calling is to bring Jesus to people. Again, I said earlier, I've gotten a lot of pressure. I've gotten emails, unsolicited emails from people locally and from across the country in the last couple weeks to rally the troops to some political cause. I don't think that's what we're called to do. We're called to tell people about Jesus. The answers to this world's problems are found in Jesus, not in anything else. So somebody comes to us and they say, hey, here's, here's my problem or here's this question I have or they want to get us trapped in the weeds. Hey, what do you think about this? And you know what? I could sit and I could get caught up in their, in their debates and their arguments or I could say, you know what? I don't know, but I know Jesus is the answer. And that's the question I have to constantly ask myself. Do I bring people to Jesus? Do I bring people to Jesus? Christians, non-Christians, do I bring people to Jesus? Do I point people to Jesus? And then I want to speak to non-believers, people who say, you know what, I don't know that I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm open to Jesus. I've been thinking about Jesus. I have questions about Jesus. And it's this, and we are going to talk about more about this next week, but I want to address it now. Are you evaluating Jesus or are you evaluating something else? And here's what I mean by that. Think about this. The Sadducees, they were talking about like, oh, there's no resurrection of the dead, and here's why. But Jesus says, you're not even asking the right questions. You don't know the scripture, and you don't know the power of God. So maybe you're not evaluating Jesus. You might think you are, but you're not evaluating Jesus. You're evaluating some side issue. Maybe you think you're evaluating Jesus, but what you've really been rejecting isn't Jesus. It's some hypocrite who claims to be a Christian. Maybe what you have been running away from isn't the followers of Jesus. It's some church that claims Christ, but really they are a political group, a social club, a, a, an, an activist organization in the guise of the kingdom of heaven. In dis, you know, they're in disguise. We'll, we'll pretend to be the kingdom of heaven, but really we're of the kingdom of earth. I think it's a fair question to say you can accept or reject Jesus, but make sure that it's Jesus that you're evaluating. Make sure that it's Jesus you're accepting or rejecting and not a Pharisee and not a Sadducee and not a hypocrite. Make sure that it's Jesus that you're considering. Because all of these people wanted to talk about things that had nothing to do with the core 
question. Who is Jesus? They seemed very uninterested in talking about that. And at every turn, that seems to be what Jesus wanted to get back to. This chapter opens with him talking about the invitation to the wedding feast for the king's son. And they seem to have no interest in talking about that. And it closes with this question, who is the Messiah? Who is the son of David? Who is the rightful king of Israel? And they have no interest in talking about that. Christians, we need to bring Jesus. Non-Christians, if you're considering Jesus, make sure that it's actually Jesus that you're considering and not something else that's trying to masquerade and pretend. And wherever you're at, I believe Jesus will meet you. I believe that fully and totally. God bless you, and may the peace of Christ be with you this week. May the church, the true church of Jesus, know his peace and his power. May we be people that bring Jesus to the world around us. was love